Bible Church of Beaufort on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area. Call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions and phone calls. Uh, You can email us here into the studio. The email address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Or you can call us locally in the local number in whether you're listening in Georgia or South Carolina is 843-525-1859. When you uh, call, you can go on the air or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question and we're happy to receive it in that fashion as well. So uh, we also have a number of Internet listeners who listen across the country. And if you want to use our toll free line, you can. And that number is 877. The call letters W.A.G.P. 980. Rick, as always, it's great to be here. So let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, Pastor. We do indeed have a question that came in via the Internet. The listener wanted to know, um, have you ever heard of a book or read the book called The Shack? And if so, what do you think of it? Well, not a whole lot. Um, I, I don't think it's really a good book. It's unfortunate. William Young wrote it. It came out, I don't know, five or six years ago. Uh, he was a, uh, a an author who actually went to a decent school, Multnomah School of the Bible, uh, but unfortunately ended up apostatizing from the faith. One of his uh, professors, uh, James D. Young, he's William Young who wrote the book, he wrote a book called Burning Down the Shack, and uh, it was actually, I think, a healthy response because it's just filled with error. But the sad thing is, and this is the state of evangelicalism in America, is it sold some 10 million copies, uh, and now it's published in some 30 languages. But there's all kinds of error in it. For instance, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit take on human form in his uh, story where they take on human bodies. No, only God the Son takes on humanity. Uh, someone might say, well, that's just, you know, kind of picturing them through different characters as to what they're like. Well, you know, you don't want to misrepresent God and create a false notion of him. Uh, he argues in his book that God doesn't need to punish sin on people, that sin is its own punishment with the consequences that are built in. Well, it is true that there are consequences that sin brings For every kick, there's a kick back. Uh, But that's not the picture that God gives in reference to his eternal retribution. He will punish sin. And that's the whole point of the atonement, that Christ became the substitute. But the idea that, you know, sin is its own punishment, that's more of, you know, Eastern religion. That's the concept of karma. That's not the concept of the biblical gospel. Um, He also argues in the book basically for a form of universalism. Uh, he, he says that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist or a Mormon or a Muslim or a Democrat or a Republican, 
uh, God welcomes you. Well, he welcomes everyone, but he's very, very clear that there is only one way of salvation. And so, again, he argues uh, in the book um, because he creates these different characters that represent the different members of the Trinity. And uh, the Lord Jesus tells his character, Mac, in the book that, you know, the best way any human can relate to the Father or the Spirit is through Jesus. The best way, not the only way, just the best way. Well, Jesus doesn't claim to be a good way. He doesn't even claim to be the best way. He claims to be the only way. And if he's not the only way, he's really no way at all. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's articular in the original. No one can come to the Father but through me. Peter said, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If, if he's not the only way, he's no way. Because if he claims to be the only way and he's not, then he's either ill-informed, he's not a true prophet. He filled three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And he's, uh, a de- he's a liar. He's a deceiver. And then he's a sinner. So the universalism that he teaches in the book, which is very appealing to the unregenerate mind, to the lost person, that there can be, you know, many paths to God. It, it's just heresy. So uh, again, there are, there are books like this, you know, um, that are coming out, whether it's the shack or Sarah Young's book, um, you know, where God gives her these direct revelations and she writes them down. Christians today are so naive and so undertaught in sound doctrine that they just buy into this stuff hook, line, and sinker. And, you know, they, they have no discernment to do what they need to do. And so it's kind of a sad day that we live in. Um, someone just came up to me in church on Sunday and wanted to know, you know, what I thought uh, about this book that was done by Sarah Young, you know, Jesus Speaking. And I said, it's, it's, it's terrible, I, I said it's uh, it's not sustained by Scripture. And really what she does in her book, though she would certainly claim to be an evangelical Christian, and I'm not questioning whether or not she's born again, but what she's done is she's opened the door for the same kind of error that comes through every cult. Every cult is built on some extra book, some extra dream, some extra revelation, some direct communication with God outside of Scripture. So when she has you journal, you know, God in the first person, God speaking to you, uh, that's very, very dangerous. But again, you know, we live in a day where women are just sucking these books up, uh, her book, uh, and men are sucking up books like The Shack. I'm not making a gender difference here. Both are deceived and uh, because they're uninformed and they don't know what God's word says anymore. Uh, So we need to be aware of this because God told us in the last days that there would be, you know, a proliferation of error. And we're seeing that in the day that we live in. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Or you can always email us at tbl at wagp.net. Our next uh, caller would like to know why some members of her family who are Catholic give Mary such high regard and at times go to her not directly to Christ. Well, it goes back really to what Roman Catholicism says in reference to who Mary is. Number one, she really makes her, they really make her sinless in Luke chapter one and what we call the Magnificant. That's a Latin term for a song of praise. Uh, The titles that are given at the top of your chapters or different paragraphs are there just to help us find our way around 
but they're not inspired. But it's a good title because it really uh, is a song of praise that God gives her. But she says here in, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 47, she says, In my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. If you're sinless, you don't need a Savior. But Mary acknowledged that she needed a Savior. Uh, if Mary um, were sinless, then Jesus uh, would have set her apart. Uh, but that's not what he does. Um, she is viewed, you know, and rebuked even on one occasion. Uh, not rebuked, that's too strong a word, but she's uh, corrected in Mark 3. Uh, she's not a perfect person. She's a marvelous woman. God set her apart in a unique way uh, to carry the Messiah in her womb. But nonetheless, she still is a fallible human person and a sinner. But the uh, dogma that Mary was without sin is actually a rather recent dogma in the history of the, of the Roman Catholic Church. It had been a tradition that had been around for centuries. Some would put it at the 6th and 7th century. Uh, it's debatable, but it's not until 1851 that one of the popes speaks what is referred to as ex cathedra. Ex cathedra is when the pope speaks officially from his chair on an issue of faith and morals. And so in that year, the Pope spoke and said that Mary was without sin. And at that point, it becomes an official dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. Sometimes evangelical Christians will, you know, quote some Pope for saying something that they know is not consistent with the Bible. And they say, you see, here's heresy in the church. And a Pope may uh, speak a heretical statement, but not necessarily representing the church. But when he speaks from his chair on an issue of faith and morals, then it's an official dogma. Seven years later, uh, the Pope came out and said that in 1858, that Mary actually literally physically was ascended into heaven, that her body did not uh, undergo decay, uh, that it was, it was brought by God into heaven. And so again, if you've got someone who's sinless, and you have uh, someone who has already been resurrected, so to speak, and is there with the Lord Jesus, then you've got someone to pray to. And so they manufactured a whole doctrine that goes beyond the scripture. And it comes back basically to what the Protestant Reformation said, is scripture alone our final authority? And if scripture alone is our final authority, then that needs to be where we build our truth, our doctrine. So you've got uh, the doctrine that she's sinless, that she was ascended into heaven, and of course the doctrine of perpetual virginity that's taught in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Eastern Orthodox Church as well. That Mary was forever a virgin, that she had no other children. Well, again, that goes against the biblical record. Um, How do they uh, build this uh, view that's called the Helvidian view? Uh, that she was, in essence, uh, forever um, a virgin, though she was married to Joseph. Well, they build it on a Latin translation of the Bible that was done in the 4th century by St. Jerome. And in the Latin translation, it's not nearly as specific as Greek. And like any language, it has its limitations. And so when you take uh, the original scriptures that God gave in the New Testament in Greek with a few lines and sentences in Aramaic, and you put it into another tongue, you can definitely sometimes lose some fine nuance. Um, and that's certainly true when you go from Greek into Latin, because uh, they say, well, these uh, children that are mentioned are not really her children. Those are, um, you know, cousins of Jesus, when they mentioned uh, the brothers and sisters of the Lord in Mark 3 and 
in other passages. Uh, that's not the case. Very clearly, Mark 3, 21, 31, Mark, Matthew 12, 46 to 50. Uh, these are passages that indicate she was fallible and that she um, really did what God called her to do. She had children. She obeyed the Lord. Uh, Mary had Jesus without a human father, but Jesus had half brothers. Uh, some of them are named the brothers. The sisters are in the plural. Four brothers are named. We know there's at least two sisters. So there's at least six children other than Jesus that um, he grew up with in that family. Uh, so again, it, it's just based on some uh, misinformed doctrine. This is what I would say to you, though, as you try to witness to your family, is I would try to keep it simple and go back to the gospel. And if they'll reason with you from the Bible as to how a person is made right with God, that's where you begin. Because once someone embraces Christ as Savior, they're born again and they have a new ability in which to see and perceive and understand truth. Because a natural man, Paul will write, does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. But when we're born again and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, we become baby Christians, but we still nonetheless, even as baby Christians, have a new ability to perceive and receive uh, truth that we didn't have before uh, God saved us. So great question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. And if you have a, a question you'd like to maybe email us, you can do so at tbl at net. We had an earlier caller who wonders uh, if uh, you are caught in a situation where someone is threatening your life, um, unless you can quote the Quran like what happened in Paris, <laughs> uh, if you don't do that, are you denying Christ? You mean if if you know a verse from the Quran that you can quote? Well, let's see. <laughs> you know, uh, Unless you can quote the Quran like what yeah, happened in Paris. Yeah, so basically they went through. Uh, oh, if, and they, you, if you do quote the Quran, are you denying Christ, I guess is the question. Yeah, well, uh, in, in Milan, not Paris, I don't know that this happened in Paris, but it did happen last week in Milan where they ended up killing, I think, 28 people there in that Radisson uh, Blue Hotel is they confronted individuals, and if they were able to quote a verse from the Quran, they let them go. If they couldn't, they shot them dead. A nice people. Um, very, very, very sad. No, we should stand for Christ, even if it costs us our life. The Lord told us this. He said, you know, don't fear those who can kill the body only. Fear him, meaning God, who can kill both body and soul in hell. So listen, the worst they can do is take us out physically and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we never want to do anything by which we would deny our Lord and our Savior. And so, no, a true Christian, when he's confronted, he's not going to deny Christ and say, well, I'm a Muslim and let me give you a verse out of the Quran to prove I'm a Muslim. No, a true Christian is going to say, I'm a Christian. A true Christian will not deny Christ before men. It's not your confession of Christ before men that saves you. When Jesus said, you know, whoever will not confess me, you know, in the word that's used for confess, there is a Greek word that speaks of an open, unashamed kind of confession. Uh, someone who will not confess me before men, I'll not confess him before my father. Someone who will deny me before men, I'll deny him before my father. So uh, it's what the heart man believes under righteousness, but whatever is in the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if we are genuinely born again, 
were going to be willing to take a stance for Christ. Uh, So, you know, when Billy Graham offers an invitation and he invites people, now Franklin, his son, to publicly confess Christ, obviously uh, walking down the aisle of a church or Billy Graham crusade or Franklin Graham, uh, he doesn't call them crusades, but festivals has never saved anyone. But Jesus can make that analogy Uh, that if we really are saved, we will openly confess him because that's a fruit of conversion. If it's real on the inside, it will be unashamed on the outside. So I appreciate that, and it's a good question. I think we had another related question. Uh Uh-huh, and this one relates to uh, the refugees. This person wants to know whether uh, Christians should be bringing in refugees. Do you think we as Christians ought to be bringing in refugees? They saw in the news that over 1,000 pastors signed a letter saying that they should. Yeah, I saw that um, letter that came out four or five days ago, and it was done really by a number of what I would call social gospel pastors uh, and maybe a few uninformed and ignorant evangelicals. But for the most part, they were from liberal apostate denominations that have left their biblical roots. Listen, God is really clear. We should have compassion on the widow and the orphan and the alien in the land. And God repeatedly gave that principle to Israel. And in giving it to Israel, he's really given it to us in this respect that, you know, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. But again, you let scripture interpret scripture. If someone lived in Israel and they were an alien and they violated Israel's law, they fell under the same consequences. Uh, They could be punished with capital punishment. And so just making someone, you know, an alien and an orphan and showing compassion does not excuse them from the truth that, you know, there there still needs to be accountability. You know, we have a huge problem in this nation, and it's growing, and I suppose maybe for some politicians, it's not going to be until it blows up in our face that we're going to realize really how foolish and naive we are. I do believe we need to secure the southern border, not because I'm against Mexicans or any of the other, you know, South American nations that are streaming over the border. Uh, Forget just the Latin American countries where they, they seemingly are less of a threat and they're coming here for you know, you know, economic reasons, largely because it's such a great country to come to, we still need to recognize that God is the one who determined nations. Paul, when he is um, preaching there in Athens, up on the top of Mars Hill, I've just turned there, it's found here in Acts 17, and it said, um, here it is, and he made from one every nation of man to live on all the face of the earth, He, God, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. God establishes nations just like he establishes rulers. Now, recognize that there have been wicked rulers, um, but still God is ultimately sovereign, just like there have been nations that have, you know, stolen land from other countries. But the scripture is clear in both cases, God is sovereign in those things. So if you don't have a nation with borders, then ultimately you don't have a nation. So I think it's, you know, incredibly naive to just say, yes, let all these Syrian refugees come in. I mean, I know our president may mean well, and we are responsible as Christians to pray for him, not just to criticize him. 
but to pray for him. And he really needs our prayer now, and we need to be praying for him. But I, I think while he may be well-meaning, I, I don't think that he's really approached this in a careful manner. And we need to pray that God would help him to see some of the dangerous moves that he is, you know, presenting to our nation. Look to just say, oh, you don't want to keep the, you want to keep all these widows out and all these children out? They're, they're a small percentage if what I'm reading, even by people in his own administration, if what I'm reading is accurate, they're a small percentage of these refugees who are coming through. I mean, all you have to do is look at the pictures on television. And you see the people who are streaming over the borders, and it's mainly young men. You know, they look largely 18 to 25, and they're committed Muslims. And listen, the Quran is not a pretty book. Uh, there's a lot of things in the Quran that is really anti-God and anti-Christian. There are 109 verses in the Quran that sanction violence. And so what they are teaching is really different from what we find as expressed by the God of the Bible. And so if you want a committed Muslim, you know, people say, well, you know, uh, Islam is not a violent religion. Religion, It is if you take it at face value. You know, there are people today who call themselves Christians, but they're really not Christians and there are people today who are nominal Muslims, but they're really not Muslims in the truest sense in that they either do not know what the Quran says or really don't apply it to their life. Some of these so-called you know, radical jihadists uh, are basically just following the Quran. It talks about you know, giving people options, but if they don't you know, confess Muhammad as a prophet, that they ought to be executed. And so they're just doing what the Quran says. You can read the verses yourself. And there are many English translations now that are available that reflect accurately that even a Muslim would say, yes, this is a good translation. This is a fair translation of the Quran. And you can read some of those translations and find out that what it is sanctioning is really pretty scary. So I'm not against bringing in people in our nation, but I think we need to bring them in, especially at this point, one at a time. I mean, did not the Paris attacks show us that, uh, that indeed, um, you know, at least one of the suicide bombers, uh, they say now came through, you know, the Syrian refugee mix with a false passport. And then just last week, they found seven people at our southern border who are from Syria. Who, who are these people who are coming in? And they need to come in under the rules. We have to have borders and rules or we're not a nation. And that's what God himself affirms in Acts 17. And if we're wise, we will affirm the same truth. Good question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, or you can email us as David from Anderson, South Carolina did. And uh, he writes at the TVL at net. Do you think as... Um, Well, let's see. Uh, They actually have two questions. This is really from Ryan. First, he says, I'm looking to start reading and subscribing to some good Christian scholarly academic journals in order to deepen my understanding of the faith. I'm already a subscriber to the Answers magazine from Answers in Genesis, and I love that. Uh, What do you know or do you recommend about Bibliotheca Sacra, Table Talk magazine, and the Christian Research Journal from Hank Hanegraaff's ministry? Uh, second, on a lighter note, being from New England and living in the Carolinas, are you a Patriots or a Panthers fan? Um, okay, well, let me uh, respond to it. I appreciate that they have a hunger here. 
uh, to want to uh, go deeper and further. Uh, Bibliotheca Sacra, it's the oldest uh, theological journal that's been continually in print. It goes back to the 1870s. And it has been under the tutelage of Dallas Theological Seminary since uh, the 1930s. I think they took it over from Oberlin College in the 1930s. For the most part, uh, during its entire history, it was a conservative journal. There was a short number of years at Oberlin College when they had uh, authority over the journal where it got a little bit shaky. But uh, during the... um, presidential leadership of Lewis Perry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary. He was able to acquire it from Oberlin, and it's been a conservative uh, journal ever since. So it's it's a good journal. I've been subscribing to it since 1974. Uh, And even when I was at Dallas, uh, some of the um, back journals were made available, and I I have most of uh, the 50s. I'm missing a few years in the 60s. But it's a good reference source. I use it on occasion, and now because I am a subscriber, it is online, and you can reference uh, anything that they've printed online uh, if you uh, pay the annual subscription fee. Uh, So I would recommend that. Uh, The other magazine, if you'd bring that question back up there, Rick, so I can see it, um, the uh, Christian Research Journal from... Hank Hanegraaff, uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, I'm not a Hank Hanegraaff fan. Uh, by the way, there was a time before he was um, basically giving leadership to CRJ, the Christian Research Journal, uh, that it was uh, it was good. Uh, but it's, uh, in my opinion, it's drifted. Um, I think he's a little shaky on some things. Um, I, I've heard him twice when I've been traveling in other parts of the country and renting a car, and I usually search for a Christian radio station, and I heard him because he kind of does something that we do here on the Bible line. We just take raw live calls, and I wasn't really encouraged by some of the answers that he gave. Now, there are some things that are obviously secondary issues that are not a test of orthodoxy. Uh, he is a preterist. Uh, he teaches preterism in his eschatology, his doctrine of end times. What is that? You say, well, basically what it teaches is that most of the end time events transpired in 70 AD or before. Uh, so he would espouse that, you know, Nero was the Antichrist and the great tribulation period has already happened. And, um, you know, I, I just don't see that. I think that's a real distortion of what God says and what scripture teaches. Uh, he wrote a book, kind of a, uh, a book that sold millions of copies again, because of the ignorance of evangelicals. It was called the apocalypse click code, you know, and whenever you read a book where there's, you know, some hidden meaning and some code in which to uh, interpret the scripture, then you've really gone into shaker, shaky grind ground, you know, the plain meaning of scripture is what you should seek. Now you apply uh, a historical, contextual, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. You look at a text and its context, and you apply the rules of grammar as um, that language reflects. That's true not just in reading the Bible, but really any ancient document. So when you come to prophecy, God's really clear. How were the prophecies for the first coming of Christ fulfilled? Literally, every single one of them was literally fulfilled. 
how will the prophecies for the second coming be fulfilled? Literally, Jesus taught that even in the Olivet Discourse. Um, We are studying right now at Community Bible Church, the prophet Daniel. Daniel is really critical to understanding the book of Revelation. We've just finished the first half of Daniel, where it deals with Daniel and his friends. Uh, The second half deals with Daniel and his people's future. And it there's a number of visions that unfold that um, are all directed uh, towards the nation of Israel with the exception of, uh, of chapter seven, where it's basically a, a vision dealing with the Gentile nations of the world. In either case, uh, Daniel is very specific, very literal. Some of the prophecies that he made, because this was a test of a true prophet where they would give not only long-term prophecies, but short-term prophecies. And some of the prophecies that Daniel made were fulfilled in his own lifetime. He made some shorter range prophecies that were fulfilled during what sometimes we call the silent years between Malachi and Matthew in our Bibles. There's 400 years of silence, but it's not totally accurate to say there was 400 years of silence in that God through the prophet Daniel uh, foretold what would happen in those 400 years. And so as you approach the end of Daniel, especially the 11th chapter, he gives a number of specific prophecies that actually happen in the intertestament period. So the years are not totally silent, but how were those prophecies fulfilled? Literally, just like he said. And so when Jesus looks back at the prophet Daniel, he looks at one of his prophecies that we're going to study in Daniel 9 It's one of the most amazing prophecies that he writes and really one of the most amazing prophecies in all the Bible because it predicts uh, from the time a certain decree goes out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the exact number of days in years uh, by which Messiah will come and present himself to Israel. And it, it brings us actually to Palm Sunday. Uh, when Jesus came and said, you know, to the people of Israel, I am indeed your Messiah. Daniel predicted that. It's absolutely incredible. It's astounding when you study it and you look at it very, very carefully. So when Hanegraaff handles the word of God, and remember about a third of the word of God is prophetic in nature, and he takes a lot of passages and he spiritualizes them. He, He turns the Jewish people into the church. Look, the church is not the new Israel. And people who are saying that God's done with the Jewish people are really incredibly naive. And I know there were some Protestant reformers who taught that, Luther and Calvin. And and I can't blame those guys entirely in that they're coming out of deep Roman Catholic roots. And some of their theology was, you know, basically Catholic with a different spin on. So, So both, you know, taught infant baptism. They just put a different spin on it. Um, both taught that, um, you know, the church is God's tool. They just said that the church is not the Roman church, but the body of Christ. Uh, but like Catholicism, who said that the Roman church had become the new Israel, they just took that terminology and they said, well, the body of Christ, born again, believers have become the new Israel. And that influenced a lot of other realms of theology. So when Calvin came to Romans 9, 10, and 11, he didn't see the nation of Israel in view. He saw uh, the church in view. So God's not electing a nation in chapter 9. He's electing individuals for a destination 
to be saved. When that's not really the flow of Romans chapter 9. The flow of chapter 9 is God selecting Israel out of all the nations of the world. And when you come to chapter 10, he's explaining why they were in unbelief. And in chapter 11, he explains their future restoration. So when Hank Hennegraaff, you know, translates the uh, Jewish people to the church, that's a huge mistake. And he spiritualizes Messiah's reign. Well, he has to. If God's done with the Jewish people, then he's not going to literally come and rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years. Again, how do he fulfill all the prophecies for the first coming? Literally, why should we uh, expect him to do anything different? The land promises for the nation of Israel have been spiritualized. And there are some people like this, you know, uh, I, I love John Piper. I'm glad he has the gospel and he's preaching it. But to say that Israel is no different from Uganda, that that really irritates me. I think that does a great disservice to the body of Christ and to the way even America should treat Israel. You know, I just spoke to this issue a few weeks ago, not in reference to Piper, but in reference to our nation and how God judges nations. And I, I really think we're long overdue in one respect for the judgment of God. And But I think one of the few reasons that God has held back his judgment on America is because we have been Israel's ally. And God promises in Genesis 12 that those whom, you know, who bless Israel and Abraham and his descendants, God will bless. And what really concerns me now is some of the terminology that I hear by our government leaders in reference to the people of Israel. That, that's kind of frightening to me because it, it removes all motivation for God to preserve us as a people. Um, so I don't like his approach to the scriptures. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Norman Geisler, I think did a, a great evaluation of his book, The Apocalypse Code, and how he violates basic biblical hermeneutics. And, and that, that concerns me. Um, so again, I'm thankful that he has the gospel and the plan of salvation, but would I encourage you to uh, ascribe to his magazine? No. I would encourage you, though, to get Bib Sack. And there's a new journal that has just come out by CBMW, Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and they've only put out two issues, and I've gotten both of them so far. And I think that's excellent. That would be a great journal to have uh, to deal with the gender issues of our, our day. And that's in the forefront right now in the body of Christ. Gender issues, the role of men and women in the church, uh, the role of men and women in the home, uh, things like homosexuality, transgenderism. These are at the forefront. We've spent enough time on that question. Let's go to the next one. All righty. Um, a next caller says a pastor has said his church is a pastoral church versus a congregational church. What does this mean? Well, uh, I, I don't know for sure what he means by that, but without personally dialoguing with him, but my guess is, is that he is uh, speaking about the polity of the church, how it should be governed, uh, whether it is governed by the congregation or whether it is governed by uh, godly leaders. Now, there are some pastors who have certainly abused uh, elder rule. And so there are some churches where they have what they call a single elder form of government. And usually the argument for a single elder form of government is taken from Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus addresses the angelos of the church. Is he addressing a little literal angel? No, he, he's addressing the messenger or the pastor of the church. 
Uh, a pastor can be called an angelos. The, the term angelos for angel in angeloi for angels, plural in the New Testament, refers to messengers. So uh, John the Baptist is called an angel. His disciples are called angeloi, uh, angels. In, in what sense? They're messengers of God. And so when Jesus addresses the various churches, he's addressing a pastor. Uh, I think you could make an argument from Revelation 2 and 3 for what we would call a senior pastor. Uh, But nonetheless, even if you have a senior pastor, he is an equal among uh, a leader among equals. Uh, He may um, give direction to the local assembly, but he, with the other elders, give rules. So I don't believe in what we would call a single elder form of government. Uh, And it's kind of interesting to see a number of uh, Southern Baptist churches gravitate to their roots because English Baptists had a plurality of elders. And interestingly, when the Southern Baptist Convention was started, it was started with a real passion to plant churches. Of course, they started over the issue of slavery. There was a a man in the South who went to the mission board, which at the time was uh, in New York, and he applied to become a foreign missionary, and they rejected him because uh, his family owned slaves. And so they basically, some of the Christians in the South said, well, what you're basically saying is you'll take our money, but you won't take our sons. And so they split off and they formed the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, to their credit, uh, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, they apologized for that. That was an evil. Uh, They were blinded by the culture and maybe their wallets and prejudice and other things by endorsing slavery. Nonetheless, they had a passion to want to bring people into the kingdom and they would send different pastors to different communities. And as soon as the church was established, uh, they would send somebody else on. And very often they did not have qualified leadership to have a group of pastors over the local assembly. Well, maybe they should have spent more time in the community before they pressed on. In either case, they gravitated from a plurality of elders to a single elder form of government. And so now, a number of Southern Baptist people want to go back to a plurality of elders. And I think that's healthy uh, in this respect. Number one, it's assumed in the New Testament. For instance, James says, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. He doesn't say, let him call the elders of the churches. He doesn't say, let him call the elder singular of the church singular, but let him call the elders plural of the church singular. Uh, When Paul uh, meets the leaders uh, on that beach uh, on his, at the end of his third missionary journey from the city of Ephesus, he calls the elders from the city, uh, from the church that was there. So there's always a plurality of elders in the New Testament. And that's kind of a built-in safety in that it keeps anyone from being a dictator. So people in New Testament uh, terminology might call me today, uh, or using modern uh, terminology, a senior pastor. But still, I am a leader amongst equals. And I work with a, a group of elders who have an equal vote and an equal say. And that's good because if a man got off base... Um, he would still be accountable to those other elders. And our elders, in turn, are accountable to the congregation. The congregation doesn't choose them, but they have a chance once a year to continue to approve them or to dismiss them. Uh, 
Uh, some might say, well, you know, that's unhealthy, but there's, you know, a built-in uh, system of checks and balances, and there's actually... I think you can say this with a sense of dogmatism, that there's a plurality of elders in the local church. Is there any type of congregational say in the local church? Well, there is some congregational expression. Certainly, Jesus said, if your brother sins, uh, go and reprove him in private. If he doesn't listen, you take uh, two or three and let them reprove him. And if he doesn't listen, then you take it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, the local assembly, then the church is to treat him as an unbeliever, as a tax gatherer. So there's local expressions that a congregation can have. But there are clear passages like obey your leaders and submit to them, for they give rule over your souls. There in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, That doesn't sound very democratic, doesn't sound very congregational, certainly doesn't sound very American, but it is biblical. And when you have pure congregationalism, and there are some books that have really pushed this, um, and I'm, again, I'm not necessarily opposed to using them. We've allowed like a Bible study on occasion to be used in our church over the years called Experiencing God. But Henry Blackaby is a hardcore congregationalist, and he thinks the congregational, uh, the congregation should lead the local church. I don't. I don't think the scripture teaches that. And when you have pure congregationalism, and there are degrees of congregationalism in any local church. Uh, the exception to that would be like in Roman Catholicism, where you have basically an infallible pope. But in most evangelical churches, there's some degree of congregationalism. But Henry Blackaby's brand, I think, is potentially dangerous. Why? Because when you give a new Christian, um, someone who maybe has been a Christian a long time, but has never matured what we would call a progressively baby Christian. Sometimes we could use the term carnal Christian, though that's a term that's often abused. And a mature Christian, all an equal vote. And add to that some non-Christians who are going to be members of your church. You say, we don't accept non-Christians. Well, of course you don't, but they're going to be there. Because in every assembly, there will be some unbelievers who know all the right words, profess all the right things, but they're lost. And in the end, Jesus will say, I never knew you. He told us this, that the wheat and the tare would be mixed together. And so when you give all those people an equal saying, an equal vote, it spells disaster. You have a formula for a church split. And so most churches that have pure congregationalism uh, have at some time or another gotten into a big fight in a church business meeting or whatever, a big argument, and they've split. And so the, the new church that was started across town was not done out of a passion to plant some new local assembly. It was done out of the fact that some Christians couldn't get along. And part of the reason they couldn't get along is that the leadership, by the way the church was designed in its government, had fostered an atmosphere for division. So God gives leaders in the church that are to be respected and honored. They're not um, dictators. And so if this pastor says, well, I believe in pastoral leadership and he's the only one and he gives all the shots. And I've seen that grossly abused. You know, people have called us over the years in the Bible line and they say, you know, my pastor says he's in charge. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And he's the leader. Um, and uh, he, he runs the books of the church, and he makes all the decisions, and you, know, you get some real problems in a church like that, and it's out of balance, and I wouldn't want to be a part of it. Um, so that there's all of us submit to someone. 
Uh, if we want to have authority, we have to be under authority. And that's just the way it works. Anyway, good question. Uh, you might want to, if you really want to explore this in depth, I have a course on ecclesiology. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. And so the doctrine of ecclesiology, it's usually translated that way. It's not always in reference to the church in the Bible. Sometimes it's used of a mob. But generally speaking, when we speak of um, ecclesia, we're speaking of the church in the New Testament, either the universal church or most often the local church. And I have a, uh, a, a course on ecclesiology where I kind of walk through all these fundamental issues of church doctrine and where different Christians have come down and what have created the denominations. And if you're interested in um, uh, studying that, you can call Search the Scriptures and there'll be someone there that will help you. Let's go to the next question. 525-1859. You have to put your area code in now, 843-525-1859, or toll free at 877-924-7980. And Spencer from Locust Grove, Virginia, writes, what would you say or how should one counsel a believer uh, who says they want to get a tattoo or piercing of some sort? Um, passages that come to mind are 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20 and Leviticus nineteen twenty eight. Well, 1 Corinthians 6, many of our listeners know that. Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price, and so you're to glorify God in your body. Uh, Leviticus 19, let me just turn there. Maybe it's a little lesser known to some of us. And there we read in Leviticus 19 and in verse 28, you shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Now, some people would say that this is basically um, not part of God's moral law, but part of God's cultural law. Uh, But usually uh, when you have this uh, phrase that follows, I am the Lord, your God, or I am the Lord, he's really hammering home a truth that is more than just ceremonial or civil in nature, but is dealing with the moral law of God. Uh, For instance, in the next verse, he says, do not profane your daughter by making her a harlot so that the land may not fall to harlotry and the land become full of lewdness. Um, I'm, I'm the Lord. Um, he says in the next verse, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defied, defied by them, defiled by them. I am the Lord and so on and so forth. So all the way through this section, uh, you have some, you know, really clear, I think moral dictates. So I think when you think of tattoos, um, you're, you're really dealing with a moral issue. Now I've heard different people argue it in different ways. In fact, someone just sent me a video uh, clip. It was on YouTube by Perry Noble, the pastor of New Spring. And he kind of, you know, talks about this new tattoo and he shows you the tattoo that he got on his wrist and how, you know, it's okay to get tattoos. And he tries to argue that Christians who teach against tattoos are, you know, narrow and uh, not exercising their freedoms and they miss uh, the opportunity to uh, show artistic expression. And look, at, at worst, the guy's a false prophet. At best, he's a novice. He's just filled with error. And again, I know he now has the second largest church in America, uh, but that doesn't make him right. Uh, When you think about tattoos, certainly you would have to say that some are evil and wrong. 
every Christian, I think, could say that. You know, you've got some naked woman on your chest. You know, that obviously does not honor the Lord. Uh, Paul says that all things are lawful, but not everything is permissible. All things are, are lawful, but not everything is beneficial. So one of the things you want to ask is, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And is it really beneficial? And one of the arguments that some will make from 1 Corinthians 9 is, well, if I want to reach people with tattoos, I need to look like them. I want to be all things to all men. And so if I get a tattoo on my body, I can win some people to the Lord Jesus. Look, I think it's very doubtful that if a person um, will only listen to you because you have a tattoo, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that's going to make a difference. If, if a person will not listen to you due to the lack of a tattoo, I, I doubt they're going to listen to you at all. And I think it's uh, interesting, too. There's a real darkness to this whole thing. Uh, I, I just, you know, baptized the brother and loves the Lord. And I mean, the guy's covered in ink. And he is so ashamed of it, uh, but he has found Christ as his savior. And, you know, he came out of a pretty dark background. And of course, I baptize people most every single week, either in one or both services. And I see a lot of ink on people that other folks don't see. And it's so much a part of our culture. But the fact that there is a command against this in Leviticus 19.28 should cause someone to question I think, too, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do to, to do for the glory of God. And you have to ask, does this really glorify God in light of all the darkness that's associated with it? Uh, because for the most part, wherever you go and there is outright, unashamed, unabashed evil, you're going to find people covered in ink. I think there's a connection between that, um, that people who are lost in Really, there are, while, while all people are lost, there are some people who are deeper into evil than other people. There are certainly unbelievers who are lost, who are good moral people, who are going to die and go to hell. And then there are unbelievers who are lost, who are into, you know, the occult and drug abuse and all kinds of things. Two, you know, there's a principle of modesty in, in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 9. Paul there, of course, is speaking to women. But one of the things that he asks them to do is to be uh, modest and discreet in their behavior. And so there are some things that call attention to a person rather than to the Lord. So I I just don't think it's wise. I think um, if you are doubting whether you should get a tattoo, that's all the reason in the world not to get one. Whatever cannot be done in faith is sin. Once it's on there, it's on there. I, I'm, I'm told there's a way, I guess, to take them off, but it's incredibly expensive. I just wouldn't do it. I would go against it, especially in light of what God says in this verse in Leviticus. I think it's a moral dictate that this is not some fuzzy command. When God says, I am the Lord, whenever you read the statement, I am the Lord, God is like trying to ring your bell or whenever God says something is an abomination, he's trying to ring your bell. And I think it has just as much moral application in our day. And so, but you know, if you want to be liked by people like Perry Noble and go ahead and get a tattoo and listen to him. But if you want to obey God, I would say, don't do it. If you have one, what can you do except to use it as a reminder? You know, and the neat thing to me is this guy who recently came to Christ, who's just covered in ink. One of the first things he starts expressing is a new Christian. You know, how ashamed he was over all these tattoos on his body. 
Uh, why? Because he has a new mind in which to see things. And uh, it just changed his whole life perspective. And I often see that when genuine conversion comes. Let's go to the next question. All right. We've got Neil from Arlington, Texas on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. I have two questions. Uh, the first question, uh, there's a Christian bookstore that I go to to buy birthday gifts. And the first time I went there, uh, the girl helped me, and we talked about the Bible. Uh, neither one of us are married. And then the second time I went, uh, she recognized me, and she came and gave me this big hug, and it kind of threw me off. And I need to go back again to get a birthday gift. I guess I'd go to a different store, but... I go to that store and she gives does that again. Um, what I would want to just let her know, show her a verse from the Bible. That's probably not a good idea. Just uh, you know, give a big hug to people of the opposite sex that you you don't really know that well. Uh, Neil, so we've only got about Bible two minutes verse- there, so I'm going to cut you off and let Pastor Brogy answer that question. Then next week, you can call in with a second question. Okay. Well, it's it's a good question. And, you know, some people, they don't mean anything sexual by it, flirtatious by it. They're just huggers. And so you need to be careful, though. Um, you know, God tells women, just like he would tell men, that you're not to do anything by which you would cause your brother to stumble. And for some women to be huggers towards men, especially, of course, those they're not married to, is to potentially create a stumbling block. Uh, there are there are women who come up to me on Sunday morning, want to hug me, and I always kind of do the old side hug. I just think it's a better testimony, and I wouldn't want anyone to misunderstand my testimony for Christ. And I want to be above reproach in you know my behavior before the Lord, and that should be our approach. So I wouldn't necessarily go and chastise her, but I, you know you just say you know I'm not I'm not a real hugger, but thank you and. Um, or you turn it into a side hug where you're in control of the situation and uh, no one can call into question your testimony if someone had a video camera there and they were taking a picture of it. Uh, So our testimony is very important. We want to be above reproach, and certainly we don't want to do anything that would cause someone else to stumble. We're out of time. Um, A number of questions we just didn't get to, but... God willing, there'll be another Bible line and another day and another opportunity, unless Jesus comes back first. And I would prefer that rather be raptured and go on to the be with the Lord than to have to do another Bible line. But if he keeps us here, we will be here by his grace to serve you and encourage you. If you don't have a church home, we encourage you to consider Community Bible Church. We meet at our Bluffton Hilton Head campus right on the border there of Hilton Head and Bluffton in the Bridge Center. We also meet Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 11 uh, here at 638 Paris Highland Gateway in Bluffton. And those listeners who might be interested in a a church campus in the Rinkin-Pooler area, go to um, communitybiblechurch.us, and there's a form that you can fill out to express an interest. We're looking to begin a church there, God willing, next year. 